Amen. Uh, how are we? Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And uh, is this darker than normally? Is I feel like I can't see your faces. Can we? I just like, you're such a beautiful group of people. And <laughs> gathering together was taken away from us for like six months. And I missed actually preaching to people. I'm telling you something. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but I'll just tell you. You want to have preacher PTSD is preach to a camera in an empty room for six months. It, 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 you realize I did not get into this to become some sort of like online personality. I got into this to gather with the people of God. And though here we are. Uh, and shout out to those of you watching at home too. We love you guys. <laughs> and and uh, But man, man, I mean, Nick, I want to see you. You don't want to see that those beautiful eyes, and uh, yeah, as well as my wife is here, that baby crying is mine, so uh, yeah, just, just super thankful to be with you guys. Uh, hey, one announcement on the front end before we get started. Um, if you're new here, or maybe if you uh, have been coming for some period of time, but you want to kind of move from a place of spectating what's happening here to actually participating and belonging, uh, we have a great opportunity, a great next step for you to do that uh, today. It's not after this service, but the next service called the Summit Class. So you can just go grab a coffee or something like that. Lam it's beautiful outside. Lambert Street is alive and well. And uh, go somewhere and then come back at one o'clock and uh, we'll have this uh, opportunity for you to, we have lunch provided uh, there as well. Right, Shekinah, lunch provided as well. And so come and eat, come and eat uh, lunch with us and learn about what it means to belong to the family. All right, um, <clears throat> public speaking rule, kind of, well, there's a lot of public speaking rules, but maybe public speaking rule number one is when you speak, you should kind of have a, a clear thread, a clear line of thought through everything you're saying that's kind of focus and kind of a main idea that all of you can walk away with. And this is my uh, announcement on the front end that this is not that sermon, okay? Um, the reason, I'm gonna be all over the place, and the reason I'm all over the place is because Jesus is kind of all over the place and what we just read, I don't know if you picked up on it yet, um, and we're a church that has a conviction, we just like teaching through books of the Bible most of the time. Um, the reason we like doing that is because we feel like a church is at its healthiest when Jesus sets the agenda, and we talk about the things that Jesus talked about. If I set the agenda, we'd be talking about advanced analytics and baseball, and we'd be talking about sneaker culture. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be here for that, Michael, right? Uh, you know, sneaker culture, uh, Star Wars, like stuff that I know is fascinating, um, but uh, does not feed a church well. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to go into this, this passage that maybe you didn't pick up when Amherst first read it, uh, but it's pretty, pretty bizarre at a lot of different levels. It's not controversial, but it's just kind of bizarre and complex, and it, it takes some work to really understand what it is that is uh, going on uh, in there. And so um, let me just say this on the front end, and then I want to pray before we dive in, is one of the things, you know, we're 10 years into doing this thing, and one of the things I just feel like has built my sense of anticipation is that when we press into the passages that are easy to skip, God shows up in unique ways. Um, and what's really interesting is this is a passage, I feel like a lot of people don't preach it, or if they preach it, they preach the, uh, the Luke parallel because it's a little bit easier to understand. Um, even commentary and stuff I was reading, a lot of times just kind of breeze over this. And we're gonna take some time, and, but we're also gonna be expectant to see the way that God shows up. So I'm gonna pray to kind of start our time, and then we'll uh, dive into the, uh, the text. So uh, Father, we, uh, we love you, and we're thankful that you are with us. And we pray right now that you would wake us up to the reality that you're with us. You're here. Awaken us to the fact that you're here. And um, it is easy, tragically, for us to go about our days uh, without awareness of your presence. Um, we're not just machines executing the task of one more day of existence and having a little bit of fun. We are image bearers of you, meant to commune and experience and know you, to be fathered and shepherded by you. 
So shepherd us now. In particular, Father, I want to ask that in the same way that Jesus would say in John 10, that the sheep would hear your voice, that we as your sheep would hear your voice. Not just in a vague sense, but in a particular sense. Um, that you would bring particular conviction of sin, particular conviction of what should we obey, uh, particular conviction of what you're calling us to do as our good and great shepherd. And uh, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, here's point one. I call this a junk drawer open. Anybody have a junk drawer in their house? Lisa, you have a junk drawer? Yeah, yeah. What do you have in your junk drawer? Do you want to answer that question publicly? Like old Christmas what? Cards. Oh, nice. Nice. We're not as sentimental as a family, but I... <laughs> yeah, we don't, we're, we're much more uh, utilitarian in my home, we're much more uh, pragmatic, right? So it's like, we're not that sentimental. I admire it, though. Um, we've got uh, some scissors. We've got batteries, a lot of, lot of uh, hair ties, a lot of hair ties. We, we have um, seven nail clippers, but they're only the baby nail clippers, Yeah. Um, no adult nail clippers. Yesterday I went to trim my nails and I'm like, where are all the adult nail clippers? But all we have are baby nail clippers. So a junk drawer is kind of where you throw everything, right? Isn't that kind of where you throw everything? And this is where we're gonna, <laughs> that's, my, that's my other side. I know, you're like, you're like, whose kid is crying in here? They're all mine. If you hear them, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're all mine, okay? Um, but a, but a, a junk drawer is basically a place where we throw everything. And I'm gonna call this a junk drawer open, a junk drawer of interpretation open. I don't know if you picked this up when Amherst read the text, but there are all sorts of questions we should be asking as we look into this particular passage. I'm gonna give, give you three questions you should have asked as we dive into this. So first, as we heard this passage read over us, we should ask first, wait, did the Bible mess up the lost sheep parable? Wait, did the Bible mess up the lost sheep parable? Now here's what's interesting. Here's kind of what happens is Jesus gives a lost sheep parable. And maybe if you've been in church for any period of time, um, you've, you've probably heard this. It's pretty popular. And it, um, sorry, I'm getting my focus back. Anytime my son is sad, it's like other people's kids crying. I'm like, it's no big deal. But my kid crying, I'm like, it's hard to be fully present. Let me reset here. Okay. I'm good. Um, <laughs> just sad for him, you know, just sad for the little guy. But um, so here's what's interesting about the lost sheep parable is that critics of the Bible will make this observation about this, and I, I don't want this to be a surprise to you, is you know, you'll hear a lot of times the Bible's full of contradictions, and the point of this is a chief example of this, will say, aha, here in Matthew 18, Jesus gives the lost sheep parable, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking about children. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But if you look at Luke 15, when he also gives the, Luke, the, uh, the lost sheep parable, he's actually talking to Pharisees, and he's talking about non-Christians. See, like the Bible can't even keep its story straight. So that's the question you should be asking. Wait, did the Bible mess up the lost sheep parable? And so I just want to, um, and the reason I'm diving into all of this, I, I hope this is helpful to you, is I just want you to see that a lot of times what happens is people say the Bible is full of contradictions. And if you'll do like somewhere between 30 seconds to two minutes of thought or research, they get cleared up very quickly, okay? So like this is one of them. This is a chief example. I just want you to have confidence that what we study is the true and inerrant word of God. You ready for this? I'm gonna blow your mind in terms of why these two accounts are so different, all right? Everybody just hold on to their butts in the words of Sam Jackson's Jurassic Park, right? All right, here it is, ready? Sometimes teachers use the same story more than once. Mind-blowing, I know, I know. And sometimes they use the story to make different points 
in different contexts, and that's all that's happening. So sometimes what happens is people teach this as one and the same, and they try to kind of ignore the differences. They're supposed to be different. Jesus in Luke 15 is talking about uh, non-Christians, and he's talking to Pharisees, and here in Matthew 18, he's talking to his disciples about children. Where are that to come? Two, wait, uh, what did Jesus just say about angels? Um, and I would probably say it more like, wait, what did he just say about angels? Like, what? This is just one of those moments where uh, you just wish the disciples, Ellie on our staff made this observation. She was like, this is one of those moments where the, where the disciples not like, wait, can I ask a follow-up question to uh, what you just said? But look with me at verse uh, 10. This is where you want like the, the Snyder Cut released uh, version of this. Shout out to the one fellow DC fan in the, uh, the room. Uh, verse 10. Uh, see, do you not despise one of these little ones? So we'll come back to this in a little bit, but this, this posture towards kids, that they're not burdens, they're not intrusions, they're not unwelcome. Okay, so why do we not despise one of these little ones? For, or because, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven, and then he just keeps going. And you're like, wait, it's like, you know, it's like you, you get... It's like these moments where Jesus pulls you into a mansion of glory and he like cracks a door and you're like, what's behind that door? And he's like, keep going. We're just gonna keep going that way. No, 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 I wanna see what, that's, that's the way verse 10 is. Now what happens is sometimes I think this gets overinterpreted and uh, if you've ever heard about like guardian angels, for example, this would be the text that people would point to. I think that's a reading a little bit too much in this where they're building like an entire theology of guardian angels after one verse. But here's what we can say with certainty from the scriptures. One, God made everything and because God made everything, uh, he made everything not only physically but spiritually. If you're living under the delusion that there's exclusively a materialistic world, you are missing a significant part of creation and that's gonna have consequences on your life. Two, not everything spiritual is good. We exist in a city where to describe yourself as being spiritual or to ascribe to spirituality is positive, but as thoughtful Christians, we know that everything spiritual is not good. And consequently, when somebody describes themselves as spiritual, rather than being like, high five, that's awesome. Instead, whether it's appropriate in the context, we at least think this to ourselves, wait, is it the good kind of spiritual or the bad kind of spiritual? Three, God so fathers and shepherds us, he has a heart to protect us not only physically, but spiritually. Not only physically, but spiritually. That the angelic realm has some element of protection for us. For example, in Hebrews 1, we'll have this verse available to you, it's Hebrews 1.14, he describes angels in this way. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but Jesus is continuing this thought here in Matthew 18, 10. And I think in some way, not only uh, affirming this reality that we are shepherded and protected in the spiritual realm, but that children receive a unique sense of protection in the spiritual realm. And it's a further pointing to something we've been talking about a lot in this series of the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of man, the one who receives the most protection is the one who is viewed as the most significant, right? Anybody in the room have secret service detail in their lives? Anybody, anybody got some secret service in their life? No, because none of us are important enough for that. At least we haven't been deemed important enough for that. But it's interesting that what Jesus says, just a glimpse of it in verse 10, he's like the angels that see God face to face. Now that's an interesting little note that Jesus makes there because somebody who sees face to face to God and doesn't perish has unique access to God, unique uh, uh, proximity to God, unique power 
from God. And God's like, you see those little children there that have deemed as uh, unnecessary, deemed as insignificant? You can take them or you can leave them. Actually, in my kingdom, I view them as so much significance. They receive like the top rank of angelic protection in the spiritual realm. Three, wait, what happened to verse 11? Okay, now some of you didn't see this, but I don't want you to get home and be like, he was trying to be tricky, tricky. Okay, so look at this. All right, this is gonna be most helpful if you have a Bible in front of you. He says, see that you do not despise, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then what comes next? Verse 12, yes. Which then should be like, what happened to verse 12? Or, or sorry, verse 11. What happened to verse 11? What are they not telling us? Anybody feeling anxious right now? What did they cut out? Like, what if, can't you see a New York Times bestseller? Like the Matthew 18, 11 secret, uh, what the church doesn't want you to know. And all of a sudden, people are launching podcasts and it's just all sorts of stuff based off of this. All right, you ready for Matthew 18, 11? I know y'all are like, I don't want it to be a secret. I don't want it to be a secret because I know you're like, what did he say? Here's what Matthew 18, 11 is. You ready for it? For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Super controversial, right? For the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. Now here's what's interesting about this, here's what happened in case you're curious, like me. Um, here's basically what happened, is that the Bible was written, and when the Bible was written, it was written in something called its original autographs, its original manuscripts. And what happened is, because there weren't like iPhones that take pictures and scan and disperse it all over the place, is that what happened was scribes would copy the scriptures, the inerrant scriptures, and they would disperse them. Now, what probably happened is several hundred years removed from the original autographs that did not include verse 11 here is that some scribes maybe got a little too clever for their own good and they saw the similarities between the account in Luke 15 or the, the, the lost sheep parable in Luke 15 and the example in Matthew 18 and was like, man, that's a great line. I don't know what's there. He probably said it and so we're gonna add it. And then several hundred years later, as people were studying the original manuscripts, the original autographs, they came to the conclusion, hey, this wasn't the original thing that Jesus said and consequently we shouldn't include it, which should consequently lead us to a place of not raising our suspicion towards the scriptures, but rather raising our, uh, in, uh, our, um, our confidence. Thanks, Andy. What, is that what you said, confidence? Yeah, raising our confidence in the scripture's integrity. Does that make sense? Okay. Hopefully that was helpful, and I'm gonna shut the junk drawer, and we'll dive into, like, what does it mean that uh, what Jesus said here. So point two is hearing Jesus and asking Jesus what we should do. We saw this at the end of Matthew 7. That is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus said is the wise is the one who doesn't just hear what I say, but does it. Want to be wise? Don't just hear, but do. Build your life on the rock, Jesus says. So that's what we're going to kind of be all over the place of what it is that Jesus is talking about here. Um, Let me give you some context to remind you of what we saw um, So last week, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, in response to this, kicks off another what's called a discourse. That's a fancy word that just means a talk or a sermon. And he dives into this. Now, if you remember, the first thing that Jesus did after he uh, is asked this question is he brings a child close to him. And so I think it's important to understand as we interpret this particular passage is that Jesus really has children in mind here. Even if you look at the bookend kind of nature of what's going on here. He says in verse 10, and, and even as, I, as you look at these bookends, keep in your mind the reality of the fact that Jesus still probably has a kid right in front of him. Like, there's, like if you visualize this, if I am Jesus, not 
in any way other than for this momentary sermon illustration. And then you've got a kid right in front of him. That's, that's kind of what's going on. So you look at verse 10. He says, see that you not despise one of these, and what does he say there? Little ones. So he's probably got a kid in front of him. He's probably actually like putting his hand on his shoulder, being like one of these little ones. Look at verse 14, the end of it. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these, and what does it say? Little ones should perish. So I think Jesus, when we read the text for what it is, has in mind as he's giving the lost sheep parable, first and foremost here in Matthew 18, the idea of how it applies to children, which significantly then changes the way we might understand what it is that Jesus is after here. And I think what Jesus is trying to cultivate within us is four particular postures. I'll talk to you about each of them. First is a posture of welcome, a posture of welcome, particularly welcome towards kids. If you look at verse 10, it says, see that you do not despise, sometimes that's translated look down on, one of these little ones. This was basically the entire sermon last week, so I won't revisit it, other than to say, be constantly amazed at the fact that Jesus, single guy, never had sex and never got married, had this incredibly high view of kids. He never had kids. A lot of times in our culture, there's this lie that you can't value kids until you have kids of your own. And look to Jesus, never had sex, never got married, never had kids, and he's saying to his disciples, if you wanna be fully formed as a follower of me, you have to be regularly in proximity to children. Even just the image is kind of humorous if you think about it. I've told my wife this before, but like, let's talk about Larimer Street for a second. Here it is. Larimer Street, as it's become increasingly uh, a tourist attraction, attracts large groups of men who travel in packs, right? <laughs> um, so you just see a dozen bros broing out, right, Bobby? You see some bros out there broing out? I don't know about you, Bobby, but here's what I feel when I see a dozen guys broing out out there. I feel nervous. That's the way I feel. I feel anxious. When I see 12 men together, I'm like, what are they about to do? What law are they about to break? What are they gonna do? Like, because I mean, you just look at anything that bad, bad that's basically happened anywhere, it's from large groups of men making decisions together. That's, that's okay. So <laughs> you contrast that image with Jesus, 13 guys, Jesus, 12 disciples. Hey, what are you guys brawling out about? Elevating the value of children in the kingdom of God. Okay, I wanna roll with that crew, not that crew, okay? But seriously, the elevation of the value of children over and over again, like it's humorous, but it's also like, we don't, it's humorous because we never see it, do we? In particular for men who just opt out of like, I'm just not a kid's person, I'm gonna say it again, I'm gonna say it again. Every follower of Jesus is a kid's person. That option is not extended to us. It's not extended to us. So. This posture of welcome. We look at kids, we look at kids, and we say, you're welcome here. You're not a nuisance, you're not an intrusion, you're not a burden, you're the next generation of the kingdom of God. You're the next generation of the city. I wanna be serious about shaping you and forming you and raising you up, but I also wanna be serious about being around you because I need some of that magic that you got. It wore off when I was like 18 years old, and I want it back, you know? Show me what greatness is in the kingdom, little kid, because that's what Jesus said. All right, two, a posture of pursuit of kids. <clears throat> so verse 12, what do you think if a man has 100 sheep 
and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than, uh, more than over the 99 that never went astray. So very famous parable. It was very like, uh, just connected very much as he spoke into this particular agrarian culture. And I realize we're a more urban people. I don't think any of you own sheep. Even though Denver does get very rural very quickly. Does anybody own sheep? No? Okay. But I think we can still visualize it, right, of this guy, of this shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep. One goes astray, and the shepherd isn't like, you know what, like 99 out of 100 ain't that bad. Like 99 still gets an A. Like that's pretty. He's like, no, I, I love that sheep. And even like what's exposed here, I, I just love this about Jesus, because Jesus, God, is always revealing to us the heart of God. Everybody in our city is like, what is God like? Here's what God's like. God loves particularly. God loves individually. Like a lot of times, I'm from Virginia, so sometimes we use the second person plural, y'all, which I think is a great word actually. I've come to love it now 10 years removed from being around it. And it's like, but it's like, you know, it's like kind of, that's the way we kind of understand God sometimes. It's like, yeah, I have an idea that he, he, he loves vaguely, generally. I have a sense of he loves us in this room, but he loves you. Like he loves you, you second person singular, not y'all, you. He loves you, he knows you, he pursues you, he shepherds you, he desires to father you. If you go astray, he's not like, well, hey, you know what? The majority of the people stayed, it's no big deal. He pursues you. He loves you, he calls you out by name. God loves people, particularly, individually. God pursues people who are lost, particularly, individually. But remember, as we're trying to interpret this, we have to connect this to children. Because a lot of times what would happen here is somebody would be talking about non-Christians, but Jesus has a child right in front of him and he's talking about this. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what does it mean for God's heart to pursue children who like sheep have gone astray? What does that mean? What does that mean for God's heart to pursue children who like sheep have gone astray? I think there are a couple of implications here. I think one, in a lot of ways because of the age of our church, this parable doesn't land in a way that it will when our kids are more around like 15, 16, 17 years old that can go astray, right? Like the average age of the kids in our church is like three right now. And I'm not trying to dismiss the difficulty of three-year-olds. I got one right now. Um, but I'm telling you, there's a certain limitation to the degree to which they can stray. But as a kid gets older, becomes more independent, has more power, more opportunity, the more they can make some really bad decisions in isolation, and some of you have kids like that, but that's not the majority kind of age in our church, and we have to file this way, file this away, to even rest in the fact, because a lot of times where we go is we judge one another, and like, what did they do wrong to raise them in the wrong way? And it's just like, hey, we rest in the fact that God's heart is to pursue those who are lost. As much as our heart breaks, the Father's heart breaks. As much as we are broken and desire to pursue, the good shepherd pursues. But secondly, I don't think we're off the hook until we have a bunch of 15-year-olds here, okay? And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us now then to be a people who take seriously the protection and pursuit of kids that are in danger? And immediately where my mind goes in the answer to that question is the church's call to be about caring for the widow and the orphan. The orphan. The orphan. James says in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan, the widow and the orphan. I 
I know I'm biased here because like, I don't know if you know this, so my family, we adopted and we desire, we, we have four kids now, but we felt so convicted by this biblical call. And let me just say this on the front end, let me preface this. What I'm not saying is that adoption is, or foster care is for everybody, but it is for somebody. And it might be for some of you in the room. That's what I feel like really called about. Um, so I'm not saying it's for everybody. I'm not saying if you don't do it, it's wrong. Or you're bio- I, like, I got three biological kids. But I will say there is a particular call on the people of God to care for kids in danger, and you're seeing it expressed right here. And a kid who needs to be either fostered or adopted is in the most unique and dangerous expression of vulnerability. And I'll tell you what burdens me is too often... This mindset, it makes sense to me in the world. It does not make sense to me in the church. But too often in the church, a kid who needs to be fostered or adopted is seen as a last resort if you can't get pregnant on your own. They're seen as sort of a consolation prize. And I'll tell you what Jesus says is, they're not a consolation prize. They carry a unique, a unique affection from the Father. And I know you can go all sorts of places, but what about my kids? It's like, I'm telling you, three biological, one adopted in our own family. And I just, I see it. It's true. Somehow in the upside down nature in the kingdom of God, God the Father has a unique, particular affection for children in danger. I wish some of you could see it too. Man, if I keep talking about this, I'll I'll go very long and get very moved. Um, And... um, and yeah, and I, just, I just want some of y'all to follow this way. I'm not saying if what led you into adoption or foster care, exploring that is infertility. I'm not trying to be dismissive of that. That's so hard. I'm not trying to be, but I just, like every time I hear amongst the people of God, a, a kid like that being a consolation prize instead of an image bearer and, deserve, and being deserving of intentional pursuit and love, it burdens me. It burdens me because I think it's something other than the heart of Jesus being expressed right here. Third would be a posture of formation. A posture of formation. He says in verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think there's intentional, this gets interpreted a lot of different ways, but I think it's one of those things, sometimes Jesus just says stuff, I think to create like good tension where it's just not super clean, and so it's like, I, I think this is what he's after, is that on one hand, okay, so here's how I view it as a parent, and this is the one where there's the most parents in the room, uh, because your, your kids are with some of the kids right now, is that as a parent, the way I understand what Jesus is saying here is he is giving me responsibility and rest as a parent. Responsibility and rest. So on one hand, my responsibility, my chief job description as a dad before it's like making sure my kids become professional athletes, before it's like, um, you know, making sure they can attend the best schools or have the best opportunity or recreate or be able to ski all the time and all that stuff. Look at me, parents, your number one job description is to raise your kids to know and love and follow Jesus. And if they miss out on a lot of stuff, but they get that, they get everything. If they get everything else, but they miss Jesus, they miss what really matters. And so we have to go to a place of saying, I have a responsibility to raise my kids in the Lord. But then, here's what's really cool, is there's a rest piece of this as well, where Jesus is revealing the heart of God to be like, 
hey, God doesn't want your kids to perish. And that's so great because I think a lot of times what happens, particularly, and I think in some odd Christian subcultures that overemphasize the role of a parent, um, we're almost like if you do these things, you can make sure that they'll follow Jesus for the rest of your life, which it just doesn't work that way. As we rest in the fatherhood of God to say, you know what, like, he doesn't want my kids to perish. So, I t- like, here's the tension, here's the tension, the tension we take up. It's like, it's like, I'm showing my kids what Jesus is like, but then I'm quick to show them I'm not Jesus. That's what I do as a parent. I'm going to be quick to show them what Jesus is like. You've given me authority and influence and power in my home. Now I'm not going to use that to hurt you or to squash you or to get my way. I'm going to try to mirror to you something of the goodness of the authority of God over you and that he invites you into a relationship with him. But I'm also going to be quick to admit, yeah, I'm not Jesus. In that regular rhythm of showing and repenting, showing and repenting, showing and repenting, it comes to a place where the shepherding hand of the Father leads him into intimacy and relationship with him. I think this is kind of connected, but this is where there's like, the sermon doesn't have one continue. But this is related to parenting, but it, it was encouraging to me, so it might be encouraging to you. Particularly, I think those of you who like, feel the pressure to be like, my kid is three and I haven't catechized them yet and like, are they gonna be saved, okay? Um, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, our seminary president had, has four sons all of whom are adults who love Jesus and actually are in ministry. And I went to him and I was like, I was just trying to figure out preemptively this parenting thing. And I'm like, what did you do? Like, what was the secret? And I was expecting him to be like, well, at two, you know, we opened up, uh, you know, we, we introduced him to Luther. And then at age three, we, uh, we felt like it was the time to read through the Bible in a year. You know, it's just like, I just, you know, he said to me, I think about this a lot as a parent, especially in the early years where you just like, your kids can't pay attention um, as much as you kind of wish that they could or, you know, Bible studying doesn't have maybe the same sort of consistency. Here's what he said to me. He said, one, we made sure that our kids knew explicitly mom and dad love and follow Jesus. Two, we had a lot of fun. Three, we rested in the fact that God wanted to save our kids and use them for his glory. I just think about that all the time. So maybe that's an encouragement to you as you think about this as well. Uh, Yeah, that's all I'm gonna say about that. Fourth, <laughs> um, fourth, a posture of receiving this for ourselves. A posture of receiving this for ourselves. So remember what Jesus says to the disciples earlier. He's not just saying, hey, admire kids, but what does he say? You must become like one of these, doesn't he? You gotta become like them. So what you have to understand is this is supposed to be who we are towards children, but more significantly than this, this points to the fact that this is who our Father in heaven is towards us. God loves us. He fathers us. He shepherds us. He's kind to us. He leads us. Anytime Jesus calls us sheep and God shepherd, it should kill what we were talking about last week, this notion of independence and autonomy, and I'm okay on my own. Look, if 2020 taught us anything, it taught us we are not okay on our own. Can I get an amen from anybody about that? Yeah, like, like we get weird when we're on our own. Weird. That's the most appropriate way you describe it now. Weird on our own. And it's just weird that in this city, everybody's talking about being independent and doing your own thing. It's like, we did our own thing. Anybody feel better after doing their own thing? 
like, I, I, like I'm needy. I, I think rest in the fact that Jesus calls me a sheep. Some people get offended by that. They're like, I'm a wild stallion frolicking on my own in the Wyoming wilderness. You're not a stallion, you're a sheep. That's what you are, needy, dependent. Oh, independence and autonomy kills us. And we got this big social experiment in 2020. And what burdens me is we're gonna go like, run right back into that field being like, no, it's gonna go different this time. Independence and autonomy, I'm a wild stallion. Can't tame me, I'm fine. I'm a, I'm a sheep, sheep. Thank God I'm a sheep because that reflects the reality of my experience. I'm a sheep, needy, I'm dependent. Not okay on my own. That's the thing about sheep. Sheep independent, autonomous. You see a wild sheep? You know what a wild sheep is? A wild sheep is dinner. That's what a wild sheep is. It's dead. That's why I don't see one. It's within 15 minutes of dying on its own. And look, I know it's funny, but it's like, I'm gonna be really serious with you right now is some of you live your entire life pretending like that's not the reality of your condition. I'm independent, I'm on my own, I know what's best for me, nobody tell me what to do, I'll take God in a crisis from here or there. And Jesus is saying, the Father desires to shepherd you. And even over this past year, what you did was wander, which a lot of people did, so there's no shame in it. The Father desires to pursue you, even right now, even those of you at home, right now, you might be half distracted, kind of just having this on the background so you don't feel guilty, but like making coffee and whatever it is. And I'm just like, hey, maybe right now is just what needs to be spoken over you is the Father desires to pursue you and shepherd you and welcome you home. Welcome you home. I even see the kindness and the gentleness of God here. It's something better than you're just welcome, but you're pursued. What kind of love is that? What kind of power pursues the one who makes that kind of mistake and wanders out into danger all by themselves? Beloved, you're not abandoned, you're not forsaken, you're not shamed, you are welcomed home, and you're pursued by the Father who desires to shepherd you. And so I want to pray two things and then we'll enter in a time of response. Is I I want to pray that we actually see ourselves through this. I want you to be thinking right now, like, what is, what is kind of the way that I understand who I am? Do I see myself as independent and autonomous and not really needing anybody? Or do I see myself as needy and dependent? And we know, Father, we know that the spirit of the age The spirit of the age is such that to be needy is to be mocked. We rebuke that lie. We need you, God. Like a sheep needs a shepherd, like a child needs a father. We need you. And seeing ourselves through that particular lens, we then take that posture towards the least of these, and particularly children. And even I just pray today, I, I feel like I've seen this over these couple of weeks, is that you would just like speak and move. I don't want to do any guilt. I don't want any shame. Like nobody should be like guilted into adoption. That, that will not go well. 
Um, but if you call and you lead, I, I still remember the night you called us. And maybe today would be the call on somebody else's life. Maybe just to start with something like working in Summit Kids or trying fostering respite care, um, whatever, it, whatever it might be, Father. I just pray that this would be a time where you speak. John 10 again, Jesus says, he's the good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice. And so we want to hear your voice and how you're leading. And uh, we want to not just hear, but we want to do and obey. And so we pray we respond appropriately in this time. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond in a few ways as we try to press into what is it that we are called not only to hear, but actually do. Uh, we will sing as a family. We'll take communion. The bread's been broken, the cup's been poured out. This points to the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, when we become a follower of Jesus, you do so remembering the good shepherd who shows you his heart by laying down his life for you. I will also have a space for prayer in the back left corner of the room. So that corner right back there, we men and women who would love to receive you and pray over you. It might talk about following Jesus for the first time. It might be that Lord like, is leading you a place of conviction um, where you want to share something that you just feel like you want help kind of making sense of and discerning. Um, or you might just want to say, hey, like, I feel like we've been wrestling with this particular thing and the Lord gave clarity and we wanted to share it. Uh, you might want to ask the Lord for help. Whatever it is, there are men and women back there that would love to receive you. Uh, and so now this time is the time to press in and to see what the Lord would have us do. And um, let's now obey as the Spirit leads. <laughs>